0: To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of The Bestseller Experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe. Let's run the show. And welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish, and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay, and I'm flying solo this week. Mr. Devoe is away on a, another one of his secret missions, um, but it's this is a really, really fun episode. So stay with me. But before we jump into this week's special guest, a big thank you to our sponsor, Pro Writing Aid, the official editing software of the Bestseller Experiment. Pro Writing Aid, so much more than just a grammar checker. It's a style editor, writing mentor, all in one package. It works with uh, Scrivener, Word, Google Docs, Chrome, Safari, Firefox, OpenOffice, and Outlook. It's designed for the smarter writer, which is all of you lovely people. So as a listener of the Bestseller Experiment, you can get a whopping 20% off right now. So pop over to prowritingaid.com forward slash bestseller for that chunky discount. And also, also, now we announced last week on the Bestseller Experiment, the BXP 2020 Challenge, which is whereby we're asking people to join in with this challenge. This is going to give you your best writing year. If you've ever thought of writing a novel and just think that it's too much of a challenge, you want to write and finish that book. You want to create a writing habit. Join us on the BXP 2020 challenge. Uh, Hashtag is BXP 2020. Pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash BXP 2020 to join in the challenge. We've got dozens of people joining us already. Basically, the idea is to write 200 words a day, every day. And by the end of the year, you will have your novel. 2020 is going to be the year that it happens for you, folks. Now, onto our very special guest. I have to thank one of our listeners, Rhoda Baxter, for this, because Rhoda got in touch and said, you have to get Emma Byrne. On the podcast, because she has written the most amazing book, which I have devoured. A book called "Swearing Is Good for You." It's the first popular science book that looks at the science of swearing, and she argues that swearing, using peer-reviewed science, that swearing is both big and clever. Uh, Emma is a robot scientist, which is doubly exciting. Uh, When she's not developing intelligent systems, she writes for publications all over the world and has written this amazing book, which I devoured. Now, just a warning, folks, before we go into this, there is going to be lots of swearing in this episode. So if if you're driving in the car, you've got kids in the car, or you're a bit twitchy-twitchy about swearing, pull over now, turn it off, come back another day. So there's your warning for the sweary warning. Emma Byrne, welcome to the podcast. How the fuck are you today?
1: <laughs> I'm fucking terrific. Thanks for having me on.
0: <laughs> That's fucking marvellous. Wonderful.
1: Now, Emma, I,
0: I devoured your book. I've made all sorts of notes. It's just amazing. I'm a bit of a connoisseur of swearing. One of my favourite books is the Castle Dictionary of Slang. I love to look up how swearing has evolved over time. But the big question is, why do we swear?
1: that is a fascinating question. We're only just starting to unpick why that might be. I mean, the history of the research into swearing goes back more than 100 years. It started in the asylums in Paris with a a Victorian neuroscientist called John Hewlings Jackson. Uh, He used to study people who had been described as aphasic. Their doctors said that they had no language. It turned out that what they mainly had was just bad language. And he noticed, having done sort of uh, both him and Paul Broker doing lots of post-mortem analysis on these people when they eventually died, the damage to the left side of the brain tended to rob people of most of their language, but for some reason not swearing and not also childhood admonitions or childhood terms of endearment. And these two very emotive forms of language are processed slightly differently in the brain than the rest of our linguistic repertoire and partly it's because they're so emotive but there are other aspects of swearing that we're only just starting to unpack as to why on earth they should be so widely distributed in the brain compared to, to most of our sort of content bearing language.
0: There have been experiments haven't they where swearing is, is said to help with pain. I- Tell us about that.
1: That's right. I mean, it's a pretty reproducible experiment. It's the kind of thing that if you want to make yourself really unpopular over the Christmas party season, uh, make sure that you have a bowl of iced water at your party uh, and a stopwatch, because that's literally all you need. And it was devised by a chap called Richard Stevens up in Kiel, who has written some fantastic things about swearing and about the way that it works in the brain to kill pain or to increase stamina. And what you do is you ask people for a set of words that are neutral. So you might say, give me five words that describe, say, the table in front of you. And then you ask them for five things that they would say if they were, you know, some, something painful happened. So when I do this on stage, just because I'll do anything for a cheap laugh, I usually ask, you know, well, what would you do if I just kicked you in the bollocks or kicked you in the tits, depending on you know who I've got on stage. Um, and, and that usually gets a cheap laugh. So hooray. And what you do is to, you take the same position in the list of neutral words as the first swear word in the list of, of you know, what you'd say if, if I inflicted pain on you. And usually swearing comes out as either the first or second. Sometimes there are wordless exclamations at the top like, ah, um, but the next one is quite often a swear word. And so what Rich Stevens was doing by that was controlling for something called cognitive availability. So he wanted to rule out the idea that swearing was either trickier or easier. Maybe swearing is a harder thing to remember or a harder thing to come up with than a neutral word. Then perhaps that would be the reason why it would be more distracting. So he did this fantastic control in order to work out whether or not it's cognitive availability that's doing the hard work here. If if swearing is harder to remember than neutral words, for example, just by distracting yourself trying to remember a swear word might be the reason why it would kill pain. So he wanted to make sure that both words that people were using were equally easy to remember and then he wanted to make sure that this wasn't necessarily anything to do with intonation or anything particularly physical. So people would just repeat this one neutral word in one of the trials and one swear word in one of the other trials in the same way, pretty much over and over again. And you just stand there with a stopwatch while someone is either say, you know, for the table word, be right, square or wooden over and over again. And then for the swearing one, it's sort of bollocks or arse over and over again and generally people can keep their hands in ice cold water for about half as long again a surge to half song again when swearing than when not and i've done this on stage various times and you usually you know most people are prepared to play you do occasionally get the old person who i don't know perhaps they're masochistic or something but (laughs) it's just like stick their hand in ice water for ages anyway and I usually do this sort of bit whereby I carry on the lecture while this poor person is is standing there with their hand in ice water which is so much more funny when the person is obviously in great pain And it makes a terrible radio, but great stage stuff. And it's a fun thing to do at parties. In fact, I I first got interested in the science of swearing. I first was aware of the fact that it was the science of swearing when looking for experiments that we could do while our lab was based out of the Science Museum in London. They have something called The Late, which is one Thursday, I think, every month. that they kick all the kids out at about 6 p.m., open up again at with a bar. And because we were scientists working out of this lab within the science museum, one of the things we did to sort of sing for our supper was do experiments on slash with members of the public. But the problem wow. is, the, the astute buggy you will have noticed that I mentioned there was a. Bar. Um, <laughs> the interesting, very, any experiment was the time of night you did it. Um, the results would get far more erratic as the night wore on, <laughs> just because you know people on their seventh or eighth bottle of Stella tend to sometimes forget what the experiment was. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was more of a, a demonstration than an actual set of experiments, but it was very interesting. Because people started talking about, you know, they had so many questions. Why would swearing work this way? What is it about swearing that does work? What if you swear all the time? Is it less effective then? And these were all fascinating questions. So I started digging in the literature based on, on that. And, and I just kept boring everybody around me with, here's another amazing thing about <laughs> swearing. Uh, actually, it was it was either write a book or have nobody speak to me anymore. i boring on the subject of the science of swearing. So here I am to bore on for your listeners.
0: Oh, and it's not—it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Like I said, I ploughed through this book, and it, and that thing about the because you you hear about people who've had some kind of brain trauma or stroke or whatever, and swearing is very often the first thing to come back. Now, you you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned bad language. We talk about foul language. Swearing has this association with negativity. Is is that fair? Is that true?
1: depends very much on the word um so the word shit in english british english at least tends to be almost universally negative it's slightly different in the states where something being the shit can be it, it is a really good thing um, but my husband and i did some research together he had access to uh, essentially the these of a hose pipe, but basically an awful lot of the stream of tweets as they were coming in 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 real time. It was a project in partnership with Twitter, looking at how you could identify sentiment, how people are feeling on social media. And quite often people sell these sentiment analysis tools that just sort of go, someone's swearing, then it means something bad has happened. And we were thinking, what's a really good data set for knowing definitively whether or not what happened is bad or good. And football matches are brilliant for that because you have, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, You have one team who, when a goal is scored, is jubilant and the other team is dejected. So you have two sets of people as well that you can contrast at this exact same moment. And also people tend to put hashtags that, reveal who it is that they are supporting. So I think it's West Ham is a uh, hashtag C-O-Y-I, come on you irons, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, Is uh, Y-N-W-A, you'll never walk alone. So never it, it Cologne, really yeah. Needs yeah. to know who supports what team. <laughs> so we just went through going, all right, which which uh, Twitter accounts use these hashtags, these various premiership uh, teams in particular? and then went to days of matches and pulled out all of these tweets and went, who is swearing and when? And we found that people swore whenever something exciting happened, whether their own team scored or whether they were scored against. And also when, you know, the things happen, like somebody getting a card, someone being sent off, somebody being injured. These all cause an outpouring of usually the effort. However, when something had happened, it was almost universally in those circumstances that you saw the S word. So we called this the Phi Sigma ratio because why not? You know, you've got to throw some Greek letters in there to make it look proper science. But basically, this fuck shit ratio would tell you without <laughs> having to watch the game which team was winning and which team was not. Wow. We You all sort of dig in and do something of you know what kinds of swearing were being used we found that actually at least on twitter and i know from experience that this is not necessarily the case on the terraces terraces that's how old i am in the stands (laughs) Um, i I was watching football before the taylor report because i'm old Um, but back back in those days when when one used to on a terrace i know that you know quite often the abuse will be hurled at the opposite team or quite often at the referee and during the time that I lived in France, some of the first swearing that I learned was uh, was basically how to chant at a referee to go and, uh, <laughs> go and have a course with themselves. It's like, and, and, and this is the thing about swearing being so emotive. So like there is no other French that I am as certain of as the phrase, ah, be en coulée, which is <laughs> referee go fuck yourself in French. Um, that's all by the by. What we did find was on Twitter, unusually, or at least we think unusually, football fans, I think, were aware that they tended to be followed by and retweeted by people who followed the same team. And that instead of swearing about the other team or swearing at their players, you know, they're not venting at particular players, either, you know, in the opposition, they're not venting at the referee. What they're doing is they're lamenting. A lot of the swearing is used to evoke sympathy or to express a kind of solidarity. There is something about British football fans that the phrase we know we are uh, just seems to sum up an awful lot of that kind of enjoyable misery that a lot of British football fans seem to enjoy. And we discovered that so much of the swearing, the vast majority of the swearing was used either to try to be amusing or to try to elicit or express sympathy The only time that someone was called a lot of very bad words was there was one particular player. I think it was a West Ham player who carried out what could have been a career ending tackle on another player. And both the West Ham fans and the opposition fans said very, very rude things about that man. But it was both teams were united in their horror of this unsportsmanlike tackle but for the rest of it the swearing is very rarely used abusively
0: that's absolutely fascinating just for the listeners the the signal dipped in and out there it's almost like the skype is censoring us but the the phrase that you hear on 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 the terraces on the seats is we're shit and we know we are which is um it could almost be our national anthem really couldn't it
1: <laughs> no it is bizarre this great But there is something about eating a slightly disappointing pie. I was the hardest part growing up. So it was like eating a disappointing pie, watching disappointing football in disappointing weather. I just don't know what it is that makes this such a a huge part of our national psyche. And maybe come up as like an Arsenal fan. I'd I'd feel different. Um, But this is... There is definitely something about swearing as sympathy, either an attempt to garner sympathy or to demonstrate sympathy. There's so certainly in the UK, and also some great research in the book from Australia and New Zealand, that in the workplace, swearing as a sign of solidarity, particularly solidarity and adversity, is a big part of how swearing is used. It's used offensively and aggressively, as a far smaller proportion of all of the uses of swearing than, than you might expect.
0: Mm, I can testify to that because I worked for a publisher, who worked in a big open plan office, which is the bane of modern working life. And barely a day went by where it's usually either first thing in the morning or towards the end of the day, when you're looking at your emails and from over the, you know, over the screen, I'd hear one of my colleagues go, Oh, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> it's just, they, you know, they've read something and you know, you'd all go in and, and that's, I mean, it's interesting. It's something like, it brings me on to my next point, which is a, a, I'd like to talk about swearing in fiction and when to use it. But Mark DeVoe and I wrote this book back to reality and it's about a woman, modern woman working in an office. She's in her forties and she swears a lot and we've had one or two people go oh there's a lot of swearing in this book but it was entirely based on my wife and the women that I work with all in their kind of 40s all you know professional you know doing. but they swear an awful lot and it seems to me that we're more judgmental of women when they swear than we are of men is
1: that is that right sadly there is data to back that up I mean it's fairly old data now it's from the i think very early 2000s possibly even late 90s and it's also from the us but a very large survey was sent out with various swearing phrases in this survey and people were asked to mark along a Likert scale a five point scale of you know is it hugely offensive to not that offensive and different people were told that some of these were said by men and others were said by men. For other people, the, the situation was reversed. So, so essentially, the whether or not you were told that a particular phrase was said by a man or a woman was, was randomized. And what happened was that for all of the swearing, it was rated consistently as more offensive when people were told that the speaker was a woman. Mm. and it's not just men that do this women too rated them as more offensive also when people were asked to make judgments of character of either men or women using swearing women paid a far greater social penalty they were rated as being less intelligent less in control, less powerful uh, less likely to be somebody that you would want to date You know, whenever there was swearing used whereas purported male examples didn't suffer this penalty, there was a little bit of a a dip to whether or not you'd want to date this person. But yeah, overall, at least sort of 10, 15 years ago, and the latest data that we have, people still judged women far more harshly for swearing than than they, they meant the the exact same terminology. And it's it's interesting. I would love to see that repeated now because I'm I'm not certain that the dialers moved. On that, even though there was there were studies from the exact same era uh, around the time of MySpace. Uh, there's a fantastic s- study called "Fuck Yeah, I swear." All spelled FK, as it was in the original uh, in the original MySpace post by somebody. But it was a bunch of young women, probably. Who are the same age as the the women that you were talking about that you worked with? You know, I'm. Mm. I think I was a little bit too old for my space, and I'm 44 now. Um, but certainly, women about my age were on my space as young young women expressing themselves using swear words, and giving ostensible reasons for why they were doing this and there's quite a lot of examples of young women saying oh you've got to talk like this if you want blokes to take you seriously right interestingly as well when you when you compared posts from the uk versus the us uk girls and young women were doing a lot more swearing than u.s girls and young women which again makes me wonder if you repeated that Test about you know how harshly women and men are judged. Whether you get slightly different results in the UK than the US. So there's a lot of open questions there. But the data that we do have does seem to back up this idea that women pay a, a greater social penalty. They take a, bit, a greater social risk when they use. Spring. But that's actually part of the power of this.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating it's, uh, that there's that, that 90s phenomenon certainly in the uk of the ladette which is the young girl who drinks as much beer as the guys swears along with the guys probably very much a generation x thing as well because i had a lot of friends like that so maybe it's it could be specific to that that generation that that uh time period um, yeah
1: as, as a woman ladette i i do wonder you know if if there is this thin slice through social history of, of, of women of about my age who, whose performance of feminism was to basically be as blokey as possible. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie. It was enjoyable. You know, there's a lot of the same freedoms that, that men had of, you know, sort of that, all of those stereotypical irresponsible behaviours. Yeah, they, they were fun to indulge with and go, I don't care what you think of me. And, and there was a certain freedom to that, but I, I'm aware that that is not how, for example, a millennial generation feels. That, to be honest, I think younger men and women have far more concerns about, you know, the, just the fact that your social media history is permanently available. Somebody had been live tweeting Some of my nights out in the 90s, I don't (laughs) think I'd ever be able to have a responsible job now. So I think we were more more able to take social risks without fearing long-term consequences. So it may well be a generational thing, that that heady freedom of knowing that everything you did was entirely evanescent and only would last as long as the memories of you know, your least drunk comrade who's been out with you the (laughs) night before. (laughs) I mean, Rhoda, who you mentioned earlier, sent me a photo of the two of us when we must have been 21, I think. Mm. And like I said, I'm 44 now. And I I just look at it and I was like, I I don't think I've changed a bit, but obviously I have. (laughs) Um, and that that latter era, well, we know this from again going back to swearing research. We know that the kinds of language, both bad and other types of emotive language, that you learn in adolescence are the ones that remain emotive for your entire life. And it doesn't matter how much you learn new swear words from your kids, if you wire people up to you know sort of galvanic skin response monitors or wire them up to heart rate monitors, they it doesn't matter that you know it's swearing. It doesn't impact you as emotionally as the stuff that you learned as an adolescent. And so I think, you know, I, I, when my daughter grows up enough to say, you don't know what it's like to be young, she'll be <laughs> right. I, I will have no idea what it is like to grow up as an adolescent in the era that she'll come of age. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we we had this weird amount of freedom Of you know, culture was widespread enough, particularly broadcast culture of say, you know, this is what Ladette can look like and this is what you can do but no one was recording our every move no thank god
0: thank god for that
1: um listeners just to say
0: if you can hear banging in the background i'm having carpets fitted today i've moved to the room that is farthest from the carpets so uh, apologies for that but um it was either we recorded this today or we don't have an episode this week so uh onwards and upwards emma i'd love to talk about swearing in fiction and when mm. to use it because uh, we've had conversations on the BXP group, on Facebook, on Twitter about when we should use swearing and there tends to be this this feeling that if it's contemporary and if it's a genre like a crime thriller perhaps or uh, something, you know, maybe set in the military where there's life and death stakes, swearing is fairly acceptable. If it's a cosy romance novel perhaps set in a, say, the Victorian period, then perhaps you wouldn't expect a lot of effing and jeffin but then i watch a show like taboo with tom hardy which was set i think in the 1880s and blimey o'reilly i mean he's effin and jeffin all over the place so in your experience looking at the kind of fiction that you've read how do we know how people swore in the past that's that's my big question
1: yeah and that is a tricky one because corpuses of how People spoke that haven't gone through publication. You have to go to diaries, which tend to be very self-reflective. So sometimes there's swearing in, in individual diaries, but it's not about conversation. Or sometimes you can find them in letters, but finding it in sort of live contemporaneous speech. You know, the joy of capturing everything everybody does on sort of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram is that future historians will be able to know how people... essentially spoke off the cuff, whereas letters are usually far more considered. So it's likely that there was less swearing. But you can turn to novelists who were extremely good observers of people around them. So I'm thinking particularly in Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. So Charlotte Bronte, writing as Curra wrote a foreword to that. And I will doubtless quote it incorrectly if I don't look it up. But she writes very cogently on the fact that her sister is using words that might seem rough. So the things that are said in that book are likely to shock you know people who are of a delicate sensibility
0: oh i've I've got it here in your book i highlighted it actually i thought this is absolutely fascinating i'm reading from the book here folks charlotte bronte writing under the pseudonym Caramel, first challenged the use of niceties like b blank d for bastard i guess and d blank n uh, for damn in novels, she explained that there will be no punches pulled in the pursuit of realism. And this is the quote Wuthering Heights must appear a rude and strange production. A large class of readers will suffer greatly from the introduction into the pages of this work of words printed with all their letters, which it has become the custom to represent by the initial and final letter only, a blank line filling the interval. I may as well say at once that for this circumstance, it is out of my power to apologize, deeming it to myself a rational plan to write words. At full length, the practice of hinting by single letters those expletives with which profane and violent persons are wont to garnish their discourse—that's brilliant—strikes me as proceeding which, however well meant, is weak. And futile. I cannot tell what good it does, what feeling it spares, what horror it conceals. Now, who would have thought Charlotte Bronte was a defender of sweary language? But there you go.
1: Yeah, and she writes so muscularly about that. Mm. You know, she, I cannot see what horror it, it conceals. Um, it is out of my power to apologize. I mean, as women, we're kind of coached to be more apologetic we're coached to be more indirect but that preface is so direct um this may offend you but it's how these people speak and there is one of the things I I find quite telling is that that you know it's like this is obviously how the these rough and unmannered people speak but she must have known I, I don't know actually she grew up in a parsonage but that actually the upper classes have always been partial to a lot of unvarnished language. In fact, there was a a thing called flighting, which is essentially... Uh, Somewhat indirectly, possibly a a forerunner of of rap battles now. Um, But (laughs) kings in the uh, early Middle Ages would hire people to come and be as inventively insulting as possible. And they would hire like pairs of flighters to essentially hurl insults at each other as a verbal joust for their entertainment during dinner. And there were even some, you know, sort of famous female flighters. Who were known for being able to be as as wittily offensive as possible. So the upper classes have always had this very relaxed, you know, we we are entitled to be as rude as we like. The lower classes have always had this sort of, you know, honestly, there's too much else to worry about than my language. It's always been the middle classes that have been concerned about gentility, you know, that idea that we should be careful of what we say and i think uh, it, publishing obviously spans a wide range of people now but for a long time i think there was the idea that the novel buying market was fairly middle class and you didn't want mm. to spook you know your your gentle reader and even things like with Lady Chatterley's Lover, you know, types of content that one would not want one's wives or servants to read. That <laughs> you see it in um, in stage plays as well, so between two editions of Shakespeare's plays. That all of the things like zooms, God's wounds, and yes. Uh, Is its size, but God's eyes, but, that all of that has been expunged by the time that the master of the rebels has had his hands on it. Because again, this idea that women in particular would be corrupted by hearing this language. And there's a fantastic discourse between Richard Allestry who wrote A Lady's Calling, who's largely responsible, I think, historically for a view that women shouldn't swear. He says, I, I mentioned him in the book and I, I think I probably have a bit of a go at him. I didn't know it was possible to be that angry at somebody who died over 300 years ago. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: but he talks about there is no sound more odious to the ears of God than an oath in the mouth of a woman. And it's like <gasps> all of this terrible stuff that's going on, you know, people dying of, of hunger and of disease and you know, poverty and violence. But no, women saying, fuck, it's the it's the thing that makes Jesus cry. Um, and a plank right, right? back to him I can't remember the name of the playwright but he's obviously not going to be on Alistair's side because I think his his most famous play was called The Fart uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know high other, back, other rights available writes, uh, yeah I know right I, I really want to put that one on but he writes to Richard Alistair and he says you know ladies come to my place with and, and show every evidence of it of enjoying the stuff I write they like how naughty it is and Alistair comes back with this brilliant bit of sophistry. He's saying, Ah, but you see, if they truly are ladies, then they are so well bred that they do not understand the material with which you insult them. If they <gasps> do understand it, then they are not ladies. It's, it's, oh, it's, the, my it's,
0: word. it's, it's the same logic behind witch ducking, isn't it? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> ew,
1: ew really really is it is that kind of hideous circular reasoning um that is used to basically divide female people into ladies deserving of protection and and some degree of reverence and other types of women who were you know fallen or low or what have you and this it comes from this idea you know the idea of Restraining swearing language around women came from the idea of restraining female sexuality as well, and this desire to ensure that you were not cuckolded, that you knew that your child was yours, because your wife was so damnably innocent that she wasn't quite aware of the mysteries of how come she kept getting pregnant. Seriously, guys, do you think that after you know that, that women don't talk to one another? And again, this is where you have to go back see. Diaries and letters, and even some interesting pamphlets called things like advice to young married women. You know, sex education was out there for women, but it did have to be couched so euphemistically and so indirectly that you lose any discussion of, for example, female pleasure in sexual acts because it has to be so euphemistic. So it. This idea that unvarnished language would somehow harm women is actually the absence of that frankness that has been far more harmful over the centuries.
0: Well, that's all fine and good, uh, Emma. But won't someone think of the children? What about swearing in children's fiction? I read a fantastic article you wrote in defence of uh, Philip Pullman in The Guardian, where he'd been berated uh, for using uh, sweary words in children's fiction and children as young as he's said in the past, children as young as seven read his books. Uh, Surely, surely, Emma, we should protect the children from this foul and abusive language.
1: Yeah, I mean that that article was was just a, an absolute gift from the gods slash the Daily Mail because the Daily Mail had a crack at Philip Pullman. I loved the phraseology was that he freely admits that children as young as seven read his books. It's kind of like saying he is an avowed homosexual. You know, it's what on what kind of victorian drawing room language is this but basically they were saying you know as you say won't somebody think of the children and they did that a week before the book on swearing came out so i was very very (laughs) lucky to be able to uh, have a a bit of a counterpoint to that in, of course, The Guardian. That probably didn't hurt the the book sales, which was nice. So yeah, riding on Philip Pullman's Coattails much, But he he is right to use this language. Kids know it. Kids use it among each Mm. other. There's some great research out of the States that shows that children have usually heard at least one or two swear words by the time they leave kindergarten. So Mm. I guess that's reception class here. And the same research hasn't been done in the UK, but there was an anecdotal survey done recently showing that the majority of nursery teachers <clears throat> said that they had heard children swearing. Now there's some really nice research on the emotional impact of swearing and why it makes why this emotional impact makes swearing so memorable. And extrapolating from that, for obvious reasons, this has not been directly tried in a lab but if you don't react with shock and horror when your child uses a swear word they are less likely to use it again Mm. so if you say never say that word in front of me again i will wash your mouth out with soap and water they are most likely to go wow this is a really powerful word and anyone with toddlers knows that a good old don't ever do that again is likely to result in them doing exactly that again, just to see if you're serious. So the only advice that I'd have is if you don't want your kid to use that word again, is to focus not on the word itself. Oh God, don't do that at nursery. You'll get mummy in trouble, which is obviously the first instinct because you don't want, <laughs> you know, other parents going, your little child taught by a little child the word vulva. Oh God. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> uh, anyway, you don't want to, you, you know, the you, most of us don't want to have that conversation at the school gates or the nursery gates. So, you know, just basically say, mm, it sounds like you're very frustrated or very Very angry? Are there other ways that you could? And it's so, so touchy-feely. But that whole talking about the emotion that the child is feeling gets them to transfer their attention to the emotion, not the word. Whereas if you get all emotional with them, the research shows that that just intensifies the power of that word and they are likely to use it more often. And I, I have dodged a couple of bullets with my daughter she has picked up fucking and at one point she did use it just basically i have a little video of her marching up and down the, the kitchen <laughs> fucking, 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 fucking. and she's got hold of this toy microphone and she starts singing the word fucking into it and i was like darling do you, do you, darling so middle class darling do you, do you know what that word means she goes yeah pink. Said, what, what does it mean darling it means fucking I was like, uh, it's, it's, it's a word people use when they're very emotional she goes yipping, and then she throws the microphone on the floor and goes oh fuck and it's like oh <laughs> you know what it means then fair enough but we haven't really had to repeat that we j- right. I think largely because we didn't make a massive deal out of it whereas yeah. bum always makes us laugh so both kids say bum a lot yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the other one my daughter did when we were on holiday is you know we stuck her in a high chair and I was mildly proud because all these other t- children that are sort of tired and fractious, having meltdowns and hurling things on the floor because they want to get out of this high chair. She just turned around to me and went, Mommy, get me I'm board. Get me out of this fucking high chair. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Better than a tantrum. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was, I was somebody else, uh, asked me in a radio interview, do you, do you think you're too appallingly liberal to be a parent? And I was like, <gasps> <gasps> to find too appalling me. <laughs> but I think my attitude is obviously not going to be the same as everybody's, but the best thing you can do is just not make a big deal out of it. And if you yeah. don't want your kids to swear in public, make home be a much safer place for them to experiment yes. with words and work out the emotional power of them.
0: Because exactly. otherwise they will
1: just it in their friends.
0: And again, that's the middle class is fretting. The middle class is ruin, ruining everything since the 1500s. Now, I've been swearing since I could speak, and that's not being flippant. I came from a working class family. My dad, if swearing was an Olympic sport, he would have he'd been the 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 Mark Spitz of uh, of of meddling uh, of swearing. You know, I he tells a story. We were on the bus, and uh, I kept saying "cunt." I just kept saying it oh, on a crowded bus, and he kept bouncing me on his knee, saying "Cam, Cam." So he managed <laughs> to get out of that one. But i i've been I've been swearing since day one. I've had I had my mouth uh, washed out with soap after I called my aunt a cunt as well. Um, I got into all kinds of trouble at school, but uh, it was it was this thing where I soon learned that yes, you could do it at home, and that's the thing I've done with my kids. I've said to my like you say, I've said, look. You can swear at home, maybe not in front of granny and granddad. That's Claire's parents, not mine. Because they <laughs> <Yeah. don't know. laughs> yeah. um, and certainly not at school, not in teachers, not at work, that kind of thing. And they've learned to use it effectively, I think. Uh, my son yeah. was going through a period where he was hearing these words but didn't know what they meant and like i said i'm a big fan of castle's dictionary of slang i love i you know when i got first got a dictionary i looked up swear words looked where they came from and he was going through a period where he's playing too much xbox and not enough reading so i said to him if you read a chapter of a book i'll get a swear word out of the dictionary and tell you what that swear word and that for him was ammunition because he would go to school and say do you really know what a bastard is You know, do you really know what that means? (laughs) So he was, he he had that as kind of cultural ammunition. And because of that, I think they've grown up, one, with a greater vocabulary and a greater knowledge of what these words actually mean, uh, and also kind of greater confidence when it comes to those kind of words. But it's some... It's, it is a tricky one. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's the same. If a child falls over and grazes their knee, if you start wailing and hollering, then they realize that grazing their knee is going to get them attention and they're going to start falling over and playing up. And it's the same with swearing as well. It's absolutely true. And I'm fascinated, but in the class distinction thing as well, because, um, you're, you're right. I think the, the upper classes that I, I've, I, I, I've done projects with people in the upper classes in publishing and the working classes, and there is a big connection there. It's 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 the middle classes who can't figure out if they're one or the other that get very squeamish about this. But you mentioned in the book that swearing is is an act of trust. Do you recall that? Can you tell us more about that?
1: I do. So particularly the research on this has been done in the UK, Ireland, and Australia and New Zealand, and I think also South Africa. There's a lot of research on this which is you look at how people are using swearing and how close they have to be, how well they have to know each other before that swearing is used. And quite often when you introduce new people and have them sort of mingle and groundbreak break and, and get to know one another, the first swearing that is essayed is usually quite mild It's the kind of thing that's credibly defensible as, you know, being very much a joke or possibly even a mishearing like can't for cunt. um, So that you have this kind of get out of jail free card in case you've pushed the boundary too far. But for every boundary that you successfully transgress in, in making friends with someone, you tend to then push it more and more and more until you reach a point that it's not reciprocated anymore. The person who is least comfortable kind of play—it's almost like a game of chicken. The person who's least comfortable stops reciprocating first, and then if if this person isn't another can't—they uh, will stop <laughs> trying to get any more offensive than that. Um, and it's it's something called tone switching. We we all of us, most of us anyway, have the ability to be very flexible in tone switching to know you know which of our mates we can rip the piss out of, which of our mates actually you know it's better to be just more straightforwardly supportive of. So this trust exercise, this idea that as you get as you're sussing someone out, swearing tends to ramp itself up. You tend to ramp it up and to reciprocate. It's almost like there's a turn taking of, i oh, have said an outrageous thing. And then the conversation will go on a bit and I'll go, oh God, have I said a bad thing? And then the other person will say something that is equally or slightly more outrageous. It's almost like bids in poker as well. And at some people, they stop raising you. They just see you and you go, OK, that's the level of jokiness. Yeah, it's called jocular abuse in the, in the literature. Uh, but that's the level of jocular abuse or banter that we are comfortable with in this particular group. And it's, you know, when you, these linguists that sit there and and even things like annotate how long pauses are or have classifications of, you know, a hundred different types of laughter from nervous to defensive to wholehearted and looking at how swearing is received, that sometimes people do make errors and they usually only make those in the first few hours or even minutes of knowing people. And after that, we tend to get a really good idea of what the level of offensiveness is that that person is comfortable with. Sometimes we can be led astray by, this is another really interesting thing from the research, is that if you put an extra person in the room, like a particularly a researcher, and particularly a researcher with clipboards... These same people tend to be far more circumspect Mm. and will rate the other person as being, you know, probably a little bit more prudish than that person would themselves would rate themselves. But as soon as you just leave two people in the room alone together without a third party, people tend to take more risks sooner in terms of, you know, jocular abuse, and it tends to happen more in same sex partners same-sex dyads so women will be likely to say rude things to other women men likely say rude things to other men but when you put a man and a woman in the room together the level of popular abuse tends to stay quite low so there's all this stuff about social power dynamics but a lot of it is to do with can i say this and not have this person either punch me in the face or report (laughs) me to hr it's it's this level of risk taking and it's not saying i trust you enough to believe that you trust me enough to know that I'm not doing this to be awful. Yeah, And there are, yeah. of course, those people who are doing it to be awful and then go, ha-ha, lol, just kidding, when they're called out for it. But we can tell the difference. You know, as humans, you're very clear on people's intentions, the pragmatics of what people say. You know, that that is very easily judged. Uh, you give recordings of the same, the exact same phrase, but said... You know, in one sense, you know, jokingly and in another sense, cruelly and without any other cue just from tone of voice. People can tell if the exact same phrase was meant, you know, as a sarcastic or ironic or hurtful put down versus, you know, a genuine. uh, Things like recording the phrase way to go. It's like, you Mm. know, you can tell if someone is saying way to go well done you did that versus way to go, you mm, way, to go. Yeah. <laughs> way to go and 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 people will analyze what that it you know record 50 different people saying way to go you know eff- effusively and sarcastically and they go aha what seems to be the case is that it's slightly slower in the sarcastic thing and the intonation doesn't rise and you yeah, my God, that is some painstaking research to find out what it is about sarcasm that sounds so fucking sarcastic. So well <laughs> <you're laughs> done for spending all that time on that.
0: <laughs> nice one. But it,
1: it is fascinating. It is really fascinating. Because somehow our brains make sense of this.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it's, it's so easy to be misconstrued. And it's interesting because we, uh, Mark and I, we did an episode with Sarah Pimbro quite early on. It was like episode 18 or something. And Sarah's terrific. She's great fun, but she's very sweary. Very, very sweary. She's of that sort of ladette generation. And I listened back to that and I wince a little bit because we're like naughty schoolboys. We're kind of egging her <laughs> on and we're joining in. And Mark and I had a full and frank conversation after that because Mark is, he's a life coach. He's got a business. He, you know, he uh, doesn't want to be seen as the you know captain sweary whereas as as an author there's some sort of if you're an author like me there's a kind of a cachet in in being you know i can say whatever the fuck i want kind of thing but we had a full (laughs) and frank conversation and certainly for the podcast we decided okay let's keep it pg-13 maybe one f-bomb an episode tops uh nothing beyond that you know and since then we've actually kept the podcast fairly clean best foot forward kind of thing and um I, i think that's you know it's helped keep the podcast on track and conversations and stuff like that and we, and we do say to authors you know if you want to swear you can swear in this or whatever but very few actually do because I think media training uh puts you in a space where you are I mustn't swear if I'm going on BBC radio or whatever but it's um, <laughs> uh, yeah it's yeah so it's um it's interesting we made that decision and we now you know we've had we've had that kind of we've had that thing where we've we were trying to figure each other out trying to figure out what our level was and mm. we both decided to sort of take a step back apart from this episode so um you know, but
1: <laughs> it's apologies if it's gonna be a little know, e in a square flag so yeah. exactly
0: but that was uh, yeah that was another thing um but uh, you conclude the book and listeners you have to get this book if you have any interest in in language in any interest in people's behavior and if you're a writer this is essential you know there's stuff in here about the neuroscience of swearing pain and swearing this whole chapter on Tourette's syndrome, swearing in the workplace, how animals, primates swear, there's a whole episode there, swearing in other languages. But you end with a wonderful conclusion. You end, Emma, you say, swearing is like mustard, a great ingredient, but a lousy meal. And that sums it up for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that, again, it, novelists are the uh, sort of the, the, the they take All of the things that have been learned from neuroscience and psychology, but they have learned it through just observation of people. And and novelists, playwrights, actors are all phenomenally good at getting an instinct for voice. There is a lot of research that I think readers will find utterly fascinating about what is going on in the brain that makes a voice. But we are all you know products of our upbringing, our culture, the people who are surrounding us literally right now, and I think choosing not to swear in the podcast does make it more inclusive because it is a social risk when you swear, and some words are you know phenomenally offensive to one generation and and mild as uh, you know mild as anything to another so choosing to not swear in the podcast I think is is probably the the best way to be inclusive. But there are times when you have to choose to swear in a novel. And so understanding that, you know, the things, that instinct that you've gathered from people watching and all those, you know, sort of writing exercises and that notebook work where you've gone, I feel like this is the voice that someone would have. I feel like this is the way that they would express themselves. That quite often it turns out that your instincts, have been the same sort of instincts that have driven scientists to go, I wonder if this really is universal. And quite often, I think you'll find reading the research that, yeah, quite a lot of those authorial or actually instincts are just so spot on. The the clues, the social clues that we give each other are by their very nature, as universal as they can possibly be, that the way that we signal that we belong with one another has to be somewhat universal so that we can just all understand it so yeah i think the choice to use it very much uh, a social conditioned thing uh and varies from person to person
0: wonderful stuff i think we'll wrap that up there where can we find you online uh emma
1: so my website is emma burn is b-y-r-n-e um i'm also on twitter as syrivi
0: okay we'll put links to those in the show notes folks uh dr emma bird absolutely fascinating episode thank you so much for speaking to us today and hope to speak to you again and have
1: a great fucking day a fucking great day yourself